0: up here, if you will. You're going to see on the screen some pictures of where Mark has been. Come on up here, Mark, so we can see you. Okay, Mark, tell us us your journey as far as how did all this begin?
1: So about two years ago uh, at church camp, uh, Dale decided to do something a little different, and he and we did our own church camp, which we uh, put on. The speaker who came, his name was Joseph Williams. He's uh, a part of a program called Fusion. What Fusion is, it is a program that is centered around making disciples who make disciples who make disciples all for the glory of Christ while adding the emphasis of missions, going overseas Uh, working with uh, people who have been there for years upon years and sharing the gospel with those to mainly unreached people groups.
0: So uh, you hear about Fusion, you hear about what their mission is, and then you take off to go to Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary and you begin the Fusion program. Tell us a little bit about that Fusion program.
1: So what the program is, is well, I Experienced The first semester of my freshman year of college was going through various classes uh, that were biblical-centered uh, alongside my team and I, which is uh, six other dudes who you'll see on the screen. Uh, we lived together. We lived in a dorm room together. We did discipleship together. We studied the Word together, sang, confessed sin. Uh, there they are. That's all seven of us and we went through various trainings involving security, what it looks like to do first aid and survival, uh, what it looks like to use public transportation in just various overseas contexts. And then second semester, uh, we we went over to Niger, West Africa, to work alongside uh, various workers who have been there for, some have been over there for plus 20 years.
0: Now what I see on the screen, uh, is that where you lived?
1: So the, grass, so, the grass hut that you saw in the pictures is where myself and two other guys on my team uh, lived for a week time period. So, we would go out to this village, we would live there for about a week, and come in and out, uh, living alongside a fellow believer in the village, who he's the only one in his village out of a thousand people.
0: Somebody told me that the uh, average daytime temperature was somewhere between 100 and 110. Is that
1: right? Sadly, yes.
0: Oh. <laughs> uh Tell us what you did while you were there in Africa.
1: So for the first month, my team and I lived in the capital city of Niger, and we stayed uh, on the compound of where the workers and their affiliation and for the first month, we studied a tribal language, which is called Zarma. It's a native language to Niger and maybe Burkina Faso. Uh, for the month, we studied alongside uh, a fellow teacher whose workers have worked with before and love love him dearly. And he is a follower of Christ, which we which was even better for us. Uh, then, for the rest of our time, we moved seven hours south to a city called Gaia. Gaia is a market city that is on the Border of Niger and Benin. And so we were able to, at that time, we split off into three different teams uh, myself and two other guys. Uh, Jackson and Timothy went to a village called Tada. The three of us lived on a property with a believer named Mamadou, who you actually saw in one of the photos uh, with me and Jackson standing alongside the river. He is the only believer in his village out of a thousand people in a village that is predominantly Muslim. And we lived uh, every day with him. We did everything that we could possibly do with him. We went to the river. We did ministry with him. We sat on sat on mats and chairs for hours upon hours during the day, uh, reading the word, listening to him uh, tell us about the word in a tribal language, and just really getting to invest in him because he's the only one out in his village. And in these four months, his numbers practically quadrupled with us being there and just really investing in him because as you can see we're gone and so now he's the only one uh living in his village that is a follower of christ and our goal during those four months was to invest in relationships as much as possible and i can say after the four months we did our absolute best there were even a couple relationships where we were extremely uh excited for and we're still and we still pray daily for them as they're uh seekers of the word, seekers of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, uh, what it looks like, this different religion that's not Islam.
0: Um, Mark, what did you learn in those months in Africa?
1: So I'll give two answers, the broad picture of these nine months. I would say in these last nine months, I have grown more in my walk with Christ than probably I ever have in my life with just these past couple of years of being a follower. Uh, I can name you off 20 other people who can say the same thing and have truly done, and I can truly see that. Within these four months, I can see that uh, a couple things that I've learned. One, the church is relevant, not just here in America and not just in like uh, big countries or big populated areas where Christianity is known. But the church is relevant even in this country of Niger where the population of 23 million people and 99% of them is Muslim, that the church is relevant. Myself, alongside my team, we went to four different churches where the gospel was shared, uh, sang and worshipped alongside believers of different people groups. And so that's one thing I've learned. Another thing I've learned is that the value of brotherhood and accountability is just so important in a walk with a, in a Christian life. Uh, in these nine months, I've learned what it looks like to confess sin to people. I've learned what it's like to listen to people, confess sin to me, and how we can use the Scripture, use God and the Holy Spirit to really put our lives uh, centered around God and not ourselves, and live humbly and walk towards Christ and not to this world and their desires.
0: Mark, again... <laughs> Just one more question. How old are you?
1: I'm 19 years old.
0: Are you all gonna wait till you get mature before you serve (laughs) the Lord Jesus? There's nothing in the scripture about age. From the time you accept Jesus Christ, if that's seven or six or 10 or 50, you're supposed to be serving Him, giving your life. No, you you don't wait till you go to seminary, or you take a seminar, or you sit through enough sermons from this old preacher, you're to serve Him now. Your life is His, and a 19-year-old can make an eternal difference. Can I get back? if they want to see this is all about love not ability not education mark is there anything that you'd like to say to this congregation
1: I'd say after these last nine months just seeing what it looks like to be a follower of Christ one encouragement I would have for you all is just as pastor said it doesn't age does not matter ages It just does not matter. As a follower of Christ, we are called, uh, as part of the fusion creed, we are not called to comfort or success, but we are called to obedience. Uh, So we could have nothing. We could not have these pews. We could not have this building, but we could have all we could have is Christ. And that's really what matters.
0: The word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. Mark, turn to your right and receive... (laughs) Now, congregation, why do we give him a sword? That is a tradition to those that go in fusion. Uh, The sword of the Lord, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And that's what these young people go and share. And uh, Mark, we're proud of you. And we thank the Lord for you. And the last thing I will say to you is... You can hold it all through service, but don't wield it, all right? Let's show our appreciation. Oh, how proud we are, amen? We thank the Lord. He's 19 years old, which means when he began this process, he was 18 years old, knowing that he was going to go overseas. All right. Let's begin this morning with the true Jesus. In your bulletin, you have a sermon summary, and I would invite you to open it. Uh, That way you'll know when the pastor is done with his sermon, okay? But also you'll take something home with you. John chapter 1, the Gospel of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. Now, why do I say that? If you have a Bible, we want you to open your Bible. It's going to be on the screen, I know. But we want you to have your Bible. If you want to write in that Bible, that's fine, but we want you to have it in front of you. If you do not have a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew. Take that Bible, it's your Bible, we give that to you. John chapter one, who is the true Jesus? John chapter one, verses one through two, we would ask you to stand in honor of God's word. John chapter one, beginning with verse one and two. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Please be seated. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, Solomon the king says this, But will God dwell on the earth? Will God dwell on the earth? John opens his gospel with a declaration that Jesus Christ is none other than God in the flesh. And today we want to look at that. We want to look at who this true Jesus is. We need to understand it. Now, why? You have just heard the testimony of a 19-year-old boy that went into Africa, and there in Africa in a community that is not Christian, he lived his life for Christ. He shared the gospel of Jesus. Now, can I share something with you? Every one of us here lives in a community much like that. The people around us in your subdivision, in your apartment complex, know little about Jesus Christ. And God has placed you there so that you can tell them about the true Jesus, all right? This morning, it's all about how do we prepare? How do we tell the story? What do we say about Jesus so that our story of Jesus would touch their life, and the Holy Spirit would bring a conviction and draw them to Christ. Now, this morning, if you listen, if you take notes, you're going to have an idea of how to share who the true Jesus is. Why the books? Now, there are Gospels. What are the Gospels? The what? All right, the first four books in the New Covenant, right, the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and John. That's exactly right. Did you know that each one of them has an emphasis? Why did God want there to be four books written about the life and ministry, the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Because each one of these writers gives an emphasis about Jesus. Each one of these tells who the true Jesus is. Matthew. When you read the book of Matthew, the first gospel that we have there, Matthew's going to tell you that Jesus is a king. If you read Mark, he's going to tell you that Jesus is a servant. If you read Luke, he's going to tell you that Jesus is a man. And if you're going to read John, he's going to tell you that Jesus is God. Matthew, Matthew wrote this. This is the theme of the book of Matthew. This is the Messiah The king worship him. Now, why? Why would Matthew write about the Messiah? Because Matthew was a Jew. He was a Jewish disciple of Jesus. And not only that, before he was a disciple, he was a tax collector. He understood about governments. He understood about the oppression that went on in the land. And he understood that the people looked for a redeemer, a savior, a king. And so Matthew wrote to his Hebrew brothers and sisters that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Why? Because Matthew wanted his people to come to Jesus. Now, what does that say to me? Every one of you has family members that don't know Jesus Christ. Every one of you has fellow employees that don't claim the name of Jesus Christ. Do you want them to come to Christ? then you need to speak to them in a method that they understand. You need to come into their lives, not be separated from them, but become involved so that you can share the message of Jesus. Matthew cried out to his brother Hebrews, Jesus is king. And you know how he does that? you ever looked at the first beginning chapters of Matthew? He has a genealogy there. He goes back into the history of Jesus Christ and takes it all the way back to David. And what he's saying by that, my Jewish brothers and sisters, is this. Jesus is of the lineage of David. He is the rightful king, not just of Israel, but of our lives. That's Matthew. He took his background, his understanding, and he related the gospel to the people who were closest to him. Dear friends, that's why you have unsaved relatives. God wants you to share with them. Now let me go back again. Mark is not seminary educated. Matter of fact, he may be very little educated. But he had a heart. And with that heart, he went to a people that are not familiar with him. Dear brothers and sisters, this whole sermon is about this. Are you sharing the King with those around you? Those you're closest to? Or have you given up on them? Or maybe the truth is you've given up on Jesus. God puts you in the position you're in to share with those who you know the best. And then there's Mark. Mark's an interesting individual. Mark's theme is this Is this the servant who serves humanity? Follow him. This is the servant. He presents Jesus as a servant. All through the book of Mark, he talks about Jesus and what he has done. He shows how he ministers to those who are sick, those who are poor. Mark was not one of the disciples. But he was the son of a woman by the name of Mary, and she was a follower of Jesus Christ, Acts 12, 12. He was a close associate of Barnabas, Paul, and Peter. And the interesting thing about Mark is he blew it. He went with Barnabas, and he went with Saul on a missions journey, and he got homesick, and he came back home. So much so that the next time Paul went out, Mark's name was brought back up, and Paul said, no way, Jose. I'm not taking him. He deserted us. Now, now you're sitting here saying, you know, but pastor, you don't understand. I mean, I know those people around me, and they may be the ones that God wants me to go to, but in front of those people, I've messed up. I've made mistakes. They're not going to listen to me. That's Mark. That's, That's Mark. Sure, they know you. Sure, they know your faults. Sure, they know your mistakes. They know what you did when you were a teenager. And yet, you still have an assignment to them. How do you do that? Can I tell you how? How do you build back that which you've lost? That sense of trust in the family or the the business or the school. You follow the example of Mark, you become a servant. You see, sweet friend, you're not a chief. You're not in charge. And if you want to win back their respect and gain their ear to tell them about Jesus, then you serve them. And that's what Mark says about Jesus. Matthew says he was a king. Mark says he was a servant. And this son of God came to seek and to save that which was lost. That was Mark. Luke. Now, Luke's an interesting individual. Luke is us. He's a Gentile. And his theme is this. This is the only man among men without sin. Emulate him. Matthew talks about a kingdom. Mark talks about being a servant. But Luke says, I want to tell you about this one without sin. He emphasizes Christ's humanity. And, and who is Luke talking to? He's a Gentile. He's talking to us. David Jenkins was a pastor in, in a city in East Texas where I pastored. And, and he wrote a book on the, on the Gospel of John. And he says this, biblical historians tell us that by A.D. 60, okay, when did Jesus die? Okay, A.D. 33, probably. Somewhere between 30 and 36, but probably A.D. 30, 33. Biblical historians tell us that by A.D. 60, there may have been 100,000 Gentiles in the Christian fellowship to every one Jew who had been converted. Now, think about that jesus came matthew writes to the hebrews but the gospel of jesus spread because the gentiles heard matthew this is the messiah the king worship him mark this is a servant he'll serve humanity follow him luke this is the only man among men who never sinned emulate him And those early Gentiles who heard that, their hearts were on fire. Why? Because many of them were slaves. Many of them had no rights whatsoever. But when they heard the message of Jesus Christ, when those fellow slaves, those fellow common individuals came and told them about Jesus and what he was and who he is, they flocked to him. They weren't going to be released here on earth. But God gave them a glory in heaven. Sweet friends, there are individuals who are all around you who need to know a message that will liberate them and set them free. But it's only going to take place as you energize yourself. When you get over yourself, Not what God can do for me and how God can keep me and care for me and provide for me. But what am I going to do for the king? How am I going to serve the servant? And how am I going to live my life and follow him? And sweet friend, it changed the first century, it made the world new. Can I ask you a question? What do you think the conversation right now in that little village in Africa, what do you think that conversation is about? I think it's about these boys, and they know they're boys, who came here to our place, who slept in one of our luxury cabins and ate our food and drank our water. And told us about a king, a servant, and one without sin. You think that might affect your neighborhood? You think that might cause a row in your next family reunion? But what about John? Why did John write what he wrote? I I love John. Of all the Gospels, I love the book of John better than any of the rest of them. Because John was a rebel. When John looked at everything that was written Matthew, Mark, Luke, he said, "It's not enough. I got to write something." Now you got to understand the nickname. Okay, the nickname for John was what? Yes, he was. He was. We called the beloved disciple the one Jesus loved. But what was his real nickname? Son of Thunder. Thunder. All right, we're going to talk about that. Who is it that can serve the Lord Jesus Christ? John now, as he writes this book, is an old man. He's been imprisoned on Patmos, and he's been released because Caesar had died, Domitian. Now he's back in Ephesus, and there he's pastoring the church, an old man. And John sees the biography of Jesus Christ, and to him, it's incomplete. He wants believers to know that Jesus is not only King of the Jews, not only a servant, not only the Son of Man, but Jesus is the Son of God. You know how he begins his book? He doesn't begin his book with the birth of Jesus like Luke. He doesn't go back to Matthew and says, let me tell you about his heritage. He doesn't go back like Mark does and said, let me tell you about the servant, where he goes back to eternity before anything begins. And that's what he writes about the Son of God. Who is John? How can John write this? Well, John is not John the Baptist. He's John the disciple, the beloved one. Uh, John 21, 20 says, Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. And what does it say about John? Well, he had experiences with Jesus. John Phillips, the great commentator, says this, John almost certainly knew Jesus of Nazareth since he was a small boy. For John was the Lord's cousin. John's mother was Salome, the sister of Mary. And in family reunion time, Mary would tell Salome and her family, and little John would sit there and listen to the story about the birth of Jesus. Tell me again about the wise men. Tell me again about the camels. Tell me again about the shepherds. John had heard the message over and over again, and there were times that Jesus and Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters would come down to the lake house where John and his mother and his father, Zebedee, lived. John knew Jesus personally. John was chosen. Why, why, how could John write this intimate description of Jesus as the Son of God? because he knew his cousin. Jesus chose him, Mark 3, Matthew 10, Luke 6. Jesus commissioned him. John lived with Jesus in the band. They laughed, they cried for three years. And John is the only disciple at the cross, John 19, 26 through 27, and he's the first at the tomb with his brother Peter, his brother disciple, John 28. He's the only one of the 12 who wasn't killed. And when he writes this, it's probably around 98 AD. He's an old man. And why would he write it? Because, sweet friends, he wanted you to know about Jesus. John's not an educated rabbi. He's not a seminary graduate. He hadn't been a member of a Baptist church all of his life. He's just a simple fisherman. You a mechanic? You can be an evangelist. You a teacher? You can be an evangelist. In my prayer Noah, if you go into politics is, praise Lord, please let him be an evangelist, not a politician. He was a fisherman. He was a fisherman who was employed by his dad, Zebedee, and his brother, James. There were other men that worked. They had a thriving business. Everything was going well. But John had a nickname, his temperament, Son of Thunder. Now, did anybody hear the thunder last night? What? If you were to give me characteristics of thunder, now, Jesus called his cousin son of thunder. If, if you were to give characteristics of thunder, what would it be? What? Loud? Now, isn't that a perfect characteristic for a disciple? I mean, you think I'm loud, okay? I, I mean, here's the loud mouth who always had something to say and say it loud. What else about thunder? Anybody here ever been hit by thunder? Give us a personal testimony. Thunder hurts. It's destructive. You know what that tells me about the son of thunder? He made mistakes. Big mistakes. Loud mistakes. Anything else about thunder? What? What? Yay! It brings light, doesn't it? And that's what John did. The status of John, how he could tell about Jesus, was the status of the inner circle. James, his brother, John, and Peter were part of that inner friendship. How could John tell the biography of Jesus? In Luke 8, 41, the Scripture says... And behold, there came a man named Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house. Why did Jairus come to Jesus? Why did he bow down? Hmm? He had a daughter that died. She was sick unto death. John saw this. And when he, Jesus, came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, verse 51, except Peter and John and James and the father and the mother of the child. That's the inner circle. John sees it. He's an eyewitness. But taking her by the hand, Jesus called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. You think that changed, John? You ever seen a dead person rise? I don't think John ever forgot that. He wrote it. I think in his mind, what he thought is, I need to tell them that Jesus has power of life and death. And there is nothing, sweet people, please hear this. There is nothing more powerful than the Son of God. You got problems, you got difficulties, you got woes, you got financial problems, you got relational problems, you got health problems, are you're just a problem? Sit down with John and let him tell you what Jesus can do. See, the difficulty with most of us is we've lost the wonder We don't think anymore Jesus can do anything. And somehow we got to battle it out ourselves. Because it all depends upon us and the drugs we take. John saw the dead rise. And then in Mark 9, 2 through 8, the scripture says, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, and he led them up on a high mountain apart from themselves, and he was transfigured before them. What does that mean? That means the glory of God that was his glory in heaven came back through his body. His clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can. Whiten them, And Elijah appeared to him and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said unto Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. John saw this because he did not know what he was saying, for they were greatly afraid. And the cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. You know why John wrote about the Son of God? Because he heard God say, this is my Son. And he also saw Jesus cry. He was in that intimate moment, Matthew 26, 36 through 8, Then Jesus came with him to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two brothers of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then Jesus said to John and James and Peter, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. You see, John was commissioned to stay. Are you? In, in times of tears, when, when you prayed for that loved one, that God would give him life? In, in times when you asked God to help you find a job? In, in times when you asked God to give you sanity and a, and a grace, a time to move in your body? Was there an intimate moment with you and Jesus? John had one. And out of that, he writes five works. The Gospel, we're in. First and second, third John, and Revelation. What did John say about this true Jesus? One, go back to the verse, verse one. He is eternal. You see that? What about the true Jesus? What do you need to know about the true Jesus? Okay, why is that important? Because a few years ago, the number one group that went into Mormonism were Baptists. And that's ridiculous. But it's because we don't treasure the Scripture. We hear sermons, and we just want to live through them. Jesus is eternal. What does that mean? Jesus did not have a beginning. Jesus existed through all eternity. He was never created. So if you go into Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness, you have denied the faith of Christ. Because they say he was created by Elohim. His existence was not only before his incarnation, being born, it was before time. In the beginning was the word. Does that sound familiar? Because that's Genesis 1:1. 1, 1. In the beginning. Before anything began. And the interesting thing about that, in the Greek and in the Hebrew, there is no the. There's no article. It's in beginning. Beginning means source, origin. John is saying, before the universe began, Jesus was. He existed before the world was made. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and in him all things consist. This one, son of God, that John is sharing with the world, he wants them to know he, he's not a king given authority by God. He, he's not a servant who was born and decided he'd give his life and social ministry. This one lived, this one thrived before time even was thought about. Before God made the heavens and the earth, Jesus existed. The word was. You see it there? In the beginning was. That means continual. And the word logos, the word means that he is all authority and God said let us make man in our image after our likeness why is that plural? because Jesus was there he's eternal and he is eternally coexistent with God and the word was with God you see that? Not only is Jesus eternal, but Jesus has always been with God. I I love this. And he was with God in the Greek. You know what that means? That Jesus... um, One of my grandchildren, McKinley, was in her pumpkin seat. And nobody was paying attention to her. And that just... The greatest thing I've ever seen because that gives me an opportunity you know what I did I went up to McKinley and and she's just a little baby and I put my nose against her nose and she snorted on me that's what this means coexistent with Jesus was with God that means Jesus was face to face with God that's what that word means That means that Jesus and God laughed and cried and planned. That means they had the most intimate relationship that you can have. Jesus was not made by God to be Savior. God's, oh no, what I made is sinning. I've got to make somebody to go down. No. Jesus was their beginning. Always, There was never a time that the Word did not exist. There was never a time when Jesus was not face-to-face with God. You know why that's important? Philippians 7 and 8. The Scripture says this, Jesus willingly emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even the death of the cross. You know what Jesus gave up when he came to earth? He gave up was. Face to face with God. Intimate relationship with God. Why? For you. That's why he did it. The word was with God. Jesus. And he is God. Look at that verse one again. And the word was God. Jesus who became flesh. Jesus who lived on the earth. Jesus is God. That's what the scripture says. The interesting thing in the Greek is there are four words. Theo en he logos. Four words in the English. It's a simple statement. It's one of the cleanest, most direct declarations of Jesus' deity. Friend, you ever had somebody who confronted you when you want to talk to them about Jesus and said, Jesus never said that he was God. It's right here in the Greek. Jesus is God in essence and character. Everything God is, Jesus is. He's not a lighter version of God. And the fact is, John... Was a Palestinian Jew. And he knew what he just wrote was blasphemy to the Jews. And he didn't back off. He was a man who had spent three and a half years with Jesus. He had heard his teachings, seen his miracles, had been there, the resurrection. And a half a century later, he said, Let me tell you who Jesus is. Jesus wasn't just made when he was born. He didn't become the Christ because he died and ascended unto heaven. Jesus is God. You want to talk to a Muslim? They'll go along with you through everything. He's a great prophet, just like Allah. But when you get to the point where you say Jesus is God, they'll back off. That's what makes us different. John 17, 21, John knew what he was saying. And they all by one as you, Father, are in me, and I am you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is one with the Father. He is God. He is the Lord himself. He speaks. And when Thomas puts his hand in his side and cries out, my Lord and my God, that's our response. He is the one God. Look at verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. What does that mean? Why is that not just the same as the other? Because of the Hebrew, they understood Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When you talk to others, particularly Muslims, they're going to say that we believe in three gods. No, we don't. In Genesis 1-1, the Hebrew says, In beginning, God, Elohim. That's a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word Elohim is a plural noun followed by a singular verb. In beginning, Elohim created. That's a singular verb. In Deuteronomy 6-4, it speaks of plural God in three forms. It's a trinity. One times one times one is one. From the beginning, Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit were one. And those three in one God working. Want to see them all together? It's found in Mark chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. John is telling us who Jesus is, who's the true Jesus. And immediately coming up from the water, Jesus was baptized, came up out of the water like we baptize. And he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit, descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, this is God, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That is the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And all through the scripture it speaks about those three as they carry the gospel. John shared the message. And because John shared the message and he completed the biography of Jesus, his world was changed. It's It's interesting to know about this old man, John, in the church at Ephesus. And after Patmos, which was the prison camp he was placed in, Mission died, Caesar. John was released. Because the only crime that he had committed was sharing the gospel about Jesus. And he was sent back to Ephesus. And historians tell us that what he did the rest of his life was follow the example of Mark, teetering around, serving the church, teaching like Matthew that Jesus is the King. Sharing with them that Luke that Jesus was fully God, fully man, but sharing the gospel. That Jesus is the Son of God. In Ephesus, out of that little church there grew to be a mission sending organization to change the world. I asked Mark, Mark, what are you going to do now? Mark, don't you think you've had enough of serving Jesus? Did they pay you that much? Come on, people. That's who he is. So why don't you serve him? What hinders you? John gave his life, all of his life to his cousin, who was God. And my question to you today is this. Knowing all of this, who are you going to give your life to? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for those who are willing to write and to share with us who Jesus really is, the true Jesus, who Heavenly Father gave us a, such a clear picture of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King, the servant, the human God. And yet, Lord, now is the time for us to share it. And Heavenly Father, it's not because we don't have people to share it with, they're there in our hearts are there in our prayers. And and Lord, it's nobody else's responsibility but ours. It cost John, as it cost every one of those disciples and those early followers. But Lord, they literally turned their world upside down. Lord, is there anything that the United States of America needs more than the Savior? Lord, could we make it personal? Is there anything that the Blankenship family needs more than Jesus? Lord, that's my job. And Lord, it's the job of everyone here who claims the name of Jesus. And just like little McKinley, when I touched her nose... She smiled. That's what you've called us to do. Just like you do with the Father, face to face, sharing the love of the gospel. So let it begin here. In Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.